morning, we come to the conclusion of the book of 1 Samuel, which is found in the Old Testament. We spent 20 plus sermons walking through the book of 1 Samuel. And, uh, you know, as we preach expositionally, we're just simply walking through books of the Bible. Uh, Jason, our associate pastor right now, is going through Luke, which is in the New Testament. I'm going through 1 Samuel. And we hope that the main point of the passage would be the main point of the sermon. So we looked at 20 plus sermons in the book of 1 Samuel. And today we conclude the book by looking at 1 Samuel chapter 31. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 31. If you're sitting next to somebody who uh, might be visiting and might not know their way around Scripture, just go ahead and volunteer to help them get there. And I'll be honest, this ending here might be the worst ending ever. And we wonder if we are any better... Then at the ending of the book of Judges, if you're familiar with scripture there, it says that that ending says that everybody did what was right in their own eyes. As if they were kings unto themselves or gods unto themselves, there was no king over God's people. And so therefore, everybody just did what was right in their own eyes. In terms of the timeline, 1 Samuel chronicles the events that follows right on the heels of Judges. And Judges is a, is, a, is a dark time. The people of God are sort of spiraling darkward, downward again and again and again. God gives them Judges. The Judges judge the people of Israel and delivers them from their enemies. But still, they're on this downward spiral in some ways. And First Samuel follows on the heels of that. So in some ways, it's not a surprise that we see, once again at the end of First Samuel, sort of devastation. There is death. The people fear and run as they are defeated by their enemies. And we wonder, where is God? They have a king, but not a very good one. In fact, they have a king. This king just doesn't love God. So we wonder, where is God? Will God be faithful to his promises to make a people for himself? that displays his glory to the ends of the earth. Those are the main questions that we are left wondering at the book of, at the end of 1 Samuel. Now, to give you a little bit more background, this book really highlights on one hand the consequences of rejecting God and his word. But then on the other hand, it shows the blessings of what it looks like to love God and receive his word and submit to his good law. And this is really highlighted in the comparison and the contrast between the two main characters towards, let's say, the begin, the more like in the middle of the book towards the end, the two main characters there of Saul and David. Saul was the first king of Israel. David is going to be the second. What a crucial thing, right, to highlight for God's people, for God's people to learn, right, blessings of receiving God's word, submitting to him, and then also the consequences of rejecting God and his word. What an important thing to learn. As God's people, we're the ones to choose to reject God. They rejected God as king over them. God was their king over his people. But the people wanted a king more like in their own image. They wanted an earthly king just like all the other nations. And so, you know, God just gives them what they want. The people choose Saul to be their first king, and that goes disastrously. As Saul rejects God and his word time and time again, And because of Saul's disobedience, God eventually declares that the kingdom will be stripped from Saul and given over to another man, a man after God's own heart, whose name is David. 
Of course, Saul hates this. He can't stand God's will, so in an effort to keep the kingdom, he tries to do everything in his power to kill the threat before him, to kill David. And even though Saul pursues David, we still want good to come out of Israel, right? We still want good to come in their personal relationships. We still want Saul to truly repent because he isn't or hasn't been. And we want the people of God to do well. But regarding Saul, he is so so hard-hearted in his selfish desire for glory, for power and praise. He just does not let up. Regarding Israel, the people of God, well, of course, without a leader, they seem weak. In many ways, they're fractured. So how will it go well for them? And then regarding David, an Israelite, to be king next, right? he's actually at his lowest. Amidst all of this bad, there is the problem still of Israel's enemies, that is the Philistines, who are marching off to battle the Israelites. With Saul persisting in sin, with the nation, without godly leadership, with David at his lowest, and with the problem of the Philistines, we come to the events of our chapter, and as we read, we wonder, will the Lord be faithful to His promises to deliver His people? Uh, before I get to chapter 31, let me just explain some of the, the character. This is history, right? His, God is moving in history. If you're a Christian, this is your God moving in this history to bring about His will. If you're visiting with us, just know that we believe that God does, in fact, act in history. So what's going on here? We learn more and more about God, right? He's displaying his character. He's displaying his faithfulness. So let me just explain the history here. There is David and his men, Israelites. And then there is Saul and Israel, right? They were together. Saul hates David, right? He sees him as a threat. David and his men have to go to his enemies to, to find safety. How bad is that? He has to run away from his own people to go down to the Philistines. So he curries favor with the Philistines there. The problem, though, is, and the Philistines, they see him as kind of like mercenaries, so they think. This is wartime mentality, right? So David and his men are trying to curry up favor. I think the plan there is to eventually flip the script and then actually go to battle against the Philistines and win the victory for Israel. Do you know what I mean? He's going to turn, and so he has to deceive. This is war. He has to trick uh, the Philistines into, into uh, partnering with them. The thing, though, is that the Philistines, they eventually march up to battle against Israel. That is God's people and Saul. But then as they're marching, the Philistines, they look over at David and they say, who is this Israelite with us? You know what he's going to do? He's actually going to turn on us. What better way for this guy to get back in favor with Saul the king than to destroy us on the way to battle or in battle? So they say, okay, we don't trust you, so you go back home. Right? Imagine that devastation there. Imagine being the leader, able to lead. Able to lead, able to deliver. He's a skilled warrior, clearly, but unable to do that because of the situation. Imagine that kind of weight. If you've ever been in the position of needing to help somebody, your family, your wife, your loved ones, you're able to, but for whatever reason, you're just unable to. That's the kind of weight, I think, and the discouragement that I think David had as he had to march back to where the Philistines had him. But not only that, not only does his discouragement stop there, when he actually gets home, there's even more disappointment. His town had been burned to the ground by other raiders, 
the Amalekites who had burned the town to the ground. They had taken and stolen their families away. They were captured by their enemies. But thank God, you know, as chapter 30 goes, David chases them down, gets back all of their families. He delivers, right? But he's not on the battlefield. He knows exactly what's going to happen. He's lived amongst the Philistines. He's seen their weapons of warfare. He's seen their, their skill in forging metals, which is what they were strong at, right? So they have superior ability than the Israelites to manufacture weapons, and he watches them all go to destroy the people of God, his own people. With that in mind, now let's look at chapter 31. Now, the Philistines were fighting against Israel. And then the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan, Abinadab, Malkishua, and the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he, was, for he feared greatly. Therefore, therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men, on the same day, together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled, and the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa, so they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of, of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. When the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. This does seem, in fact, to be the worst ending ever in many ways, which is point number one if you're taking notes there, the worst ending ever, question mark. It's a horrible ending. As the account turns here, you see it turns from David, chapter 30, delivering his people, but he's off the battle line. And it goes immediately to the battle, 31-1. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel. So we are jumping viewpoints here. From David rescuing in chapter 30 and providing to the Philistines destroying imagine that scene there as if we're watching a movie and you have the setting presented to us now the philistines were fighting against israel but then you get to the main point there and the men of israel fled before the philistines and fell slain on mount gilboa it's only one sentence very quick sentence about all of the israelite men they just fall slain and then it gets even more specific right the author here, the narrator, doesn't only just want to talk about Israel, talk about Israel in one sentence, but even more so, he gets more specific and talks about these other deaths. The narrator gets to the main characters here. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan, Abinadab, Malkishua, and the sons of Saul, 
And there are tragedies all throughout the account here, starting with these. And it compounds the difficulties and the despair that one could have as you're watching Israel be destroyed. The first tragedy, David's brother in the Lord, Jonathan, is killed. Did you notice that there's an emphasis on Jonathan? He's actually the very first person mentioned as being killed, as fallen, amongst all of Saul and his household. Even before mentioning Saul the king, he talks about here, the narrator highlights the fact that Jonathan died and he fell. Jonathan, if you don't remember, was the one who rallied to David when Saul was trying to kill him. But remember, right, this is Saul's very own son. This is Saul's son who realizes that Saul has sort of gone off the rocker. And so Jonathan then risks his life for David. Jonathan is such a noble character. He's noble because he recognizes David's godliness. That's why he helps him. And then in his assistance to David, he risks his own life. He lays down his very own life to see that this one day future king would be safe. At the same time, he's also faithful to his military service to his father, right? He doesn't abandon military service, but he's actually faithful here, fighting with his father, defending Israel. Can you imagine being David there, once again, able to fight, but unable to fight? He has the skill, and as we read this account, it is almost as if David watches his brother in the Lord fall through our own eyes. Isn't that interesting? In second, in second Samuel chapter one, David is actually delivered the news of Jonathan and Saul's death, and he just greatly laments there how the mighty have fallen. They were brothers in the Lord. There's a beautiful relationship there. The second tragedy, the king who was supposed to lead the people to victory, he dies. The king, who was supposed to lead the people to victory, he dies. Look there at verses 3 to 6. I'll go ahead and read verse 3. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. I mean, can you imagine this scene, right? As it cuts again, we're sort of entered right into the battle with the clashing of swords and the shields, right? The sons of Saul fall, and then again we're transitioned to Saul himself being caught by the archers there. Maybe he runs with arrows inside of him. Maybe he staggers. Maybe he falls, writhing in pain, chest heaving, dripping with blood. And you get to verse 4 there. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised, which was a summary phrase for those who disregarded God and His law. Remember, God had given His law to Abraham and all of His people that those people, the people of God, would be circumcised. They would be set apart uh, through the symbol of circumcision, right? And so he's looking at the uncircumcised, that is the Philistines. He says, lest they come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly, probably because he feared putting, uh, ultimately killing the one that is anointed by the Lord. So what does Saul do? But he takes his own sword, which, which, you know, remember, this is probably a large sword. He takes his own sword and probably sets it on the ground and situates it in such a way where the hilt is stable. And he falls upon his own sword, running himself through. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. 
This is the king of Israel. The first king of Israel, whom the people anointed, it was he that was charged to deliver God's people from the Philistines, their enemies. First Samuel chapters, chapter 9. But instead here, he is defeated by the Philistines. The very man who was expected to love God and to lead all of his people into spiritual revitalization, who was supposed to save God's people from the Philistines, here he turns from God, or in the book, he turns from God and then is defeated by the Philistines. You look there at verse 6, this tragedy here. Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men on the same day together. Now, as we see here, clearly Saul commits suicide. I do want to take a moment here to address suicide. You realize that he must have been in great fear, thinking about Saul's suicide. He must have been in great fear. It's obvious, right? He was fearful of what the Philistines would do to him and his own body. But he had a fear of defeat in general, just all throughout the book. He had a fear of losing that very thing that he found his identity in, in what he did or in being king. He wanted the praise of man, and so he spent his whole entire life's career in the military, the king over Israel, fighting for that praise of man. And really, his story from start to finish is really just quite sad. It is true that Saul was known for some military victories, no doubt. But in 1 Samuel, it is his blatant disregard for God, the true king, that is really highlighted. His spiritual legacy was one of rejecting God and choosing instead to pursue his own glory. And this climaxes of in this uh, story here in the last few chapters. What is he seen to be doing? He's seen again to reject God's wisdom. And so he runs to the wisdom of the occult. He runs to the very ones that God had outlawed. And then in the end, in these ending chapters here, the way that the account reads is that there is Saul, right? He shares his last meal with this witch, an opposer of God. And then here in our chapter, he just dies without hope. It's pictured. All of that is symbolized there in his suicide. Did you know that uh, in the instances, in all of the instances of suicide found in Scripture, and there are five, according to uh, one person's count, John Frame, one theologian, he counts five. Did you know that they are all associated with shame and defeat? The five suicides that are presented are associated with shame and defeat. All of these instances are, or all of these individuals, they all come to this same end of self-murder through their disobedience to God. Scripture is clear, suicide and self-murder is not seen in Scripture. On one hand, it is not seen on this hand to be some sort of God-glorifying way to finish off your earthly life. The final great wonderful thing you can do as if that is your climax. Nor is it seen on this other hand as as a way that actually rescues you from all of your struggles. This is not to say that life is not hard at times. Certainly we know from David's life that life is without a doubt difficult. Keep in mind too that there are noble people in Scripture who are commended to Christians, who are commended to us readers. You're right. They too pray at times that God remove this life from me. But God never obliges to answer that, that, those prayers of those noble men. So suffering is real. 
The experience of suffering is real. Crying out to God even, such despair that would lead to that situation where we do cry out to God to remove us from this earth, in some ways, is presented clearly in Scripture. But God doesn't answer positively there. As we address suicide and think about it today, we know that suicide, for example, amongst teens is on the rise. Suicide is on the rise for different reasons. It's also very important to say here to Christians that the act of suicide, or it's important to make clear um, that we do not believe, I do not believe that the act of suicide can somehow cause a true Christian, someone who has been truly born again, to somehow lose their salvation. Because the Bible says that's actually not possible to lose your salvation. Nor does it mean that a person was never truly a Christian to begin with, right? So if we have friends one day who unfortunately, through unfortunate circumstances and through despair or for whatever it is, mental illness, they commit suicide, it is not as if that one act of sin can cause somebody to lose their salvation for the truly born-again Christian. And friends, the reason why I say that, just think about Jesus' death on the cross and what it actually accomplishes. What does it actually accomplish? I say actually because it's not potentially. Jesus' death on the cross does not potentially save people. It actually saves people. And there I think we have great hope. Because on when Jesus Christ dies on the cross and sheds His blood for the sins of his people, he does that for the sins of his people, past, present, and future. Past sins, present sins, and even future sins. God's sacrifice of Jesus Christ actually accomplishes salvation. It's not a potential. This means, friends, that there is no sin more powerful than the blood of Christ. There is no sin more powerful than the power in the blood of the cross, even suicide, and the hopelessness one feels in the moment that might lead someone to commit such an act. Suicide, friends, is not the unforgivable sin mentioned in Scripture. There is an unforgivable sin. As I understand it, we can have longer conversations about this, but as I understand the unforgivable sin, it is the persistent, continual rejection of God which by definition the Christian, the true Christian who is born again, united to Jesus Christ, does not by definition commit. He has a Spirit of God living inside of us. And so in the unfortunate circumstance where a born-again believer does in fact commit the sin of suicide, though it is a tragic act, it does not cause that person to lose their salvation, it does not show that they were True, never truly saved to begin with. But I must say, too, that this, though suicide is this tragic act, according to the biblical worldview, it is still an act that refuses, that does not recognize God as Lord in the moment. In the moment. It does not recognize that He has created us to live the life that He has given us with the breath that He has given us for him as Lord. Right? We've all been given breath. We're supposed to live it to him for his glory, trusting in all of his goodness and his faithfulness and his love and his mercy, his sovereign providence. 
the act of suicide says, I don't trust you, and so this is my solution to life's difficulties. The act of taking one's life does not recognize that one own, that one's own life is actually God's. And it doesn't recognize that the, it doesn't recognize the Lord's lordship even over that decision. It doesn't recognize His goodness and His love and His sovereign providence. If you are thinking about suicide, have thought about it, are thinking about it, let me encourage you to talk with your friend who brought you here. Talk to us as elders, the four elders here. You can freely make an appointment to talk with me, the other pastors, your friends here at this church, and know, friends, that as Christians, we believe that all life is precious. All of life is precious, which is why as we as Christians here at First Baptist Church are zealous to see life flourish in the way that God designed it to be. Now, if you remember from last week, we talked about how we are all supposed to be plugged into God, right, to give us our diagnostic, our assessment, and then the solution forward. In our sin, we all have like our, our uh, check engine lights on, and we're supposed to go to God and plug into Him, so to speak, and He tells us what the way forward, right? Trust in Jesus, believe in Him, submit your whole life unto me, and you will find rest. But we continually in our sin sort of plug ourselves in to other things. Now imagine if, if you're visiting with us as a non-Christian, imagine if you try and plug into money, relationships, sex, pleasure, whatever it is, your job, your career, finding your identity and being a king or whatever it is, money, women, etc., etc. Of course those things are not ultimate. Of course one day you will reach your end. One day you will see that all those things ultimately fail. And you're going to be wondering, is life worth living? So you see there, on one hand, without God, what is life? If I am the result of random chance and evolution, or just my cells working one way, or the survival of the fittest, you just go straight to the end. You know that there is no meaning. But if we have been created by a holy and loving God, meant to be in relationship with Him, meant to plug into Him so that we know how to flourish under His Lordship, to be saved by Jesus Christ, to experience God as Father, all of a sudden, we take all of those things, though we might be tempted to find our satisfaction, that we set them aside, and then we lean into our loving Lord. And we might be tempted to realize or to think that life is not worth living because all of these things and the despair and the discouragement. But here we are called as Christians to find satisfaction in Jesus and to know a growing satisfaction in Jesus. So friends, if you make this appointment and talk to us or just talk to your friend who brought you, talk to Christians, why is worth living? Why is life worth living when this bad thing happens and that bad thing happens and this thing over here is crumbling and you just can't get what you want over here? Friends, we're just going to tell you, well, yeah, naturally so we would feel like that because we're designed for satisfaction in Jesus. There is hope always in your Lord and Creator and in reconciliation with Him. Hope is never found in ourselves or in anything in this world. Christians hold out the hope of Jesus Christ in whom there is, in fact, rest. That's why we sung about rest early on. That's why, you know, we ha Ian led us to read that Scripture passage where we can find contentment in Jesus Christ regardless of the situation. 
is why we can trust in a sovereign God, which is one of the themes woven throughout this service here today. This hope is the reason why God had sent Jesus Christ. All have sinned. All have turned away. All seek satisfaction in something else. And in Christ, all are called to repent of their sin and believe on Him and you will be saved. All the sin that might be hounding you right now and the shame that you experience because of who knows what, all the stuff that hounded Saul, all of those things can be wiped away, forgiven of your sin. If you would turn from your sin and believe on Jesus Christ and you will know, begin to know and grow to know this hope in Jesus. Third tragedy here. With the king's defeat, so Israel is defeated. Go ahead and look there at verse 7. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived with them. Did you notice all the verbs there that we were reading when we read from beginning to the end? The Philistines, what are they doing? They are fighting against Israel. It's a verb. The Philistines there overtook. What else did they do? They struck down in verse 2. They, they found Saul. The Philistines then, what do they do when they come to the Israelite cities? They, in our verse here, they came, they lived in them. And then the Israelites, like, what are they doing? In verse 1, they fled. They fell slain. They are falling upon their swords. In verse 7, they see the deaths of their leaders and they abandon and they fled. They run from their cities. And bit by bit, the land of promise is taken over by the Philistines. Of course, naturally, they're giving up because they were led by an ungodly man. Fourth tragedy in our passage here, and maybe the most weighty when it comes to God's perspective, it is actually the most weighty. It is that the Lord is mocked. The Lord is mocked. Look there at verse 8. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three men, three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head, stripped him of his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, that is, their pagan god, and they fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shan. To the Philistines, this was not just a military victory. This battle was interpreted as a spiritual victory. As if the gods of the Philistines had won victory over the one true and living God. That's why the Philistines send messengers to carry the good news to their deities and all the people in their land. In effect, the Philistines triumphed over Israel's king. So they thought, and in so doing, they triumphed over Israel's God. There was the Lord's king, right? That is Saul, made in God's image. Here he is dead. His head is cut off. His armor is in the temple of their gods and his body was hung on the city wall. And the land of promise, again, was becoming the land of the Philistines. To the Philistines, <coughs> remember the God that Goliath once taunted? The Lord that Goliath once taunted. And the people, God's people, that the Philistines once mocked had been silenced. Tragedy is clear here at the end of 1 Samuel. 
we can't help but wonder, is hope forever lost? It seems that as, that as if God was not defeated, perhaps He had abandoned His people, right? It's the worst ending ever. So it seems. So it seems. Amidst all of this junk, we need to rem- realize that none of this was actually outside of God's plan. None of this was outside of God's plan. This is point number two if you're taking notes. None of this was outside of God's plan. How do we know that? Well, we know because in the death of Saul and the defeat of Israel, God was actually fulfilling His word of judgment. God was actually fulfilling His word of judgment. Now, I recognize that we might not always like to think about this, but that is actually what's going on here. We might be tempted to think that this is the worst ending ever, but God is actually present, and He's actually being faithful. Remember Saul's death was a reflection of his hopelessness that stemmed from what? It stemmed from his own rejection of God. Saul and all of Israel knew the consequences that would come if they rejected the Lord. God had warned them. And I want you to turn back to chapter 12 to remember this. Go ahead and turn back to chapter 12. Right, the people are, are, are calling out to Samuel to just give us a king. Just give us a king already who is going to carry a physical sword, lead us into battle just like all the other nations. We don't want God as king. And then look at what uh, Samuel says there in verse 12 um, of chapter 12. <clears throat> and when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Anamites, bad guys, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was king. He's basically rebuking them. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, that is Saul, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and your king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Verse 24. Go ahead and skip down there, there. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you will be swept away, both you and your king. The Lord told them right at the beginning there. The Lord told them. But despite God's warning, the people go on and what do they do? They, they choose them. They choose for themselves a human king. And despite God's warning, what happens in the very next chapter? Saul lives by his own word and not the, the words of the Lord. Chapter 13, 8. Saul disobeys. And because of that, God says the kingdom will be stripped from him. And then in chapter 14, the next, the next chapter there, Saul pursues his own agenda for his king, kingdom over the Lord's agenda because it's really his kingdom. And then in chapter 15, though God calls Saul to carry out divine judgment against the Amalekites, Saul refuses flat out because he would rather be wise in his own eyes than obey the words of the Lord. We could go on. Even though Saul knows that David is God's chosen one, his chosen replacement, Saul insists on killing him. And he sets himself up against Yahweh the Lord. And how ironic is it at the very end there, as Saul goes to pursue this witch, how ironic is it that Saul goes to the witch to bring up the spirit of dead Samuel? 
And in that exchange, it is the spirit of dead Samuel who tells Saul that he will go down to death. He and all of his sons and all of Israel will be handed over to the Philistines there in 28.19. So we read of so much tragedy. But as we read of so much tragedy, know that God's word of judgment is actually being fulfilled. He is being faithful to judge. And again, again as 12.25 says, If you do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Is this the worst ending ever, such that God was abandoning His people? I mean, it was clearly tragic. It was on account of the people's sin. But we see, friends, that God is actually faithful. And in this God, there is hope. Friends, what do you think of God being faithful in His judgment? What do you think of God being faithful in His judgment? Because that's what we see here, right? God's faithful to judge, meticulously so. He's careful to judge. As one pastor puts it here, we see God's meticulous judgment. God judges sin, and He's faithful to do so. It's, 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 an, it's a truth that some of us actually don't really appreciate, right? God's faithfulness, as seen in His judgment, is actually underappreciated. But of course it's underappreciated, right? Not only does it have to do with Saul, it has to do with us. It has to do with you. We were the ones. We are the ones who had rebelled against God. Again, God made us to be in a relationship with Him, loving relationship. We had all rebelled. God draws near to us like a perfect father that He is, and we basically curse Him. Tell Him to get lost. We're going to do it our own way. But God is there meticulously in His righteousness and in His holiness, noting every single way in which you have rebelled against Him. Of course, man gets gets into trouble because we wanted to be the center with God. We dismiss God to be on the periphery. The thing, though, is that just as this leads to judgment on Saul, so, of course, it leads to judgment on us for all who refuse to acknowledge God for all who reject Him and put something else in His place. right? So you see here in this in 1 Samuel, right? The loving Father, the loving King, gives us a word that we are to obey, receive trust as we live underneath His good Lordship. He draws the boundaries of which we are to live, but we reject Him, just like Saul. We trust in our own selves and our own wisdom and we rebel against God. We do not care. We write our own manual for ourselves when we live as if there is no God. But just as we see that this passage, in this passage, that God is meticulous to judge Saul, so He is meticulous to judge all who rebel against Him. This is no joke. Just as, he, just as God knew every single way in which God, Saul rejected Him, so He knows every single way in which we have rejected Him. And He knows all of your attitudes that lead to such rebellion. For maybe you here today, He knows your lack of care. He knows your straight-up disregard for Him. For others. Maybe He knows of your mockery of Him and your scorn of Him that is seen in your scorn of Christians. For others still, maybe He knows about your unjust judgment of Him 
accusing God of being things that He is not, and frankly, accusing God of being things that you know nothing of. And for all, He knows that we rebel against Him. He knows and records the fact that we would rather live as if we were kings and queens of our own universe, as if that is possible. For these things, friends, God will judge us for such treason as he judged Saul. In the moment, God will, in that moment, God will bring us face to face with the only true rightful ruler of the universe and he will stand before us as the Holy One and we will be shown to be rebels. I get that some of you guys listening, if you're visiting with us, maybe you want to write this off. Maybe you frankly just don't care. But this account of Saul's tragic life as it ends in judgment should really move us, right? It should move us to throw ourselves at God, not to throw away God and his ways and his word. It should move us to a healthy fear and a healthy awe of God. I don't mean a fear that leads you to run away. I mean a healthy fear that leads one to a right respect of God a respect of His holiness and His righteousness and His justice and His power, one that leads to a respect that leads one to desire to walk within the boundaries of God and one that leads us to trust in Him because He's good. It should also lead us to recognize His love for us as He provides us help in Jesus Christ. As Jesus walked the righteous life we should have and died on the cross, as He bore the penalty for our sin so that we would know God as loving Father. Not a crazy, like, traffic cop who gets his jollies off of writing tickets and looking at all the little infractions as if He wants to do us bad and irritate us. No, that's not why He sends Jesus Christ. That's not why He poured, that's not why He reveals our sin to us. He reveals our sin to us that He might see just how loving He is to forgive just how willing he is to welcome back those who have rebelled against him learn from saul learn from saul saul here he would have none of it he would have none of god's grace he would have none of god's word he would have none of god's lordship he rejected samuel as god's prophet rejected god's word and he just simply chose to go his own way so god according to his plan moved to judge saul and israel for their rejection of him now, if you're visiting with us, you guys, maybe you're turning up to, to, to church for the very first time. You're thinking, man, like these Christians, all they talk about is judgment. Well, that's what's in the passage, right? Again, we are preaching expositionally, just walking through the passage. We see God's judgment, so we're going to teach on God's judgment. And so it would be unfaithful for me if I was not to hold out God's judgment. We see here, we see in the cross too, God's judgment as Jesus bore the sin of his people and the wrath that we deserve. Friends, you see that here in 1 Samuel chapter 1, none of this was outside of God's plan. God was present faithfully, fulfilling His Word. A second reason how we know this was not outside of God's plan. A second reason. It's because in the background of 1 Samuel chapter 31, God was present for deliverance. God was present for deliverance, right? Not only was He present for judgment, He was present faithfully for deliverance. Was God committed to his righteousness in judging Saul and the people of Israel? Absolutely. He told him so. He's just fulfilling his word. But just as committed as God is to his righteousness, so God is also committed to his steadfast love 
and His tender mercies towards His people. He does not, never, ever forsake His promises to His people. Never. So if you're back there in chapter 12, chapter 12 just go ahead and go back there again. If you're not there, turn back there, chapter 12. This verse is just amazing, right? Samuel knows that the people of Israel have sinned. They've turned away. God knows that his own people have turned away from him. They'd rather topple over him and set themselves up in his throne. But what does he say to them? You look there at 19, right? Temporarily, people are convicted of the sin. Verse 19, and all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. Right? They're under conviction here. So it seems. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. What does it say in verse 22? For the Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. It's beautiful, isn't it? He knows the people have sinned against Him, yet He says, don't be afraid, the Lord will be faithful. And God knows exactly how the story would unfold. And even here at 1 Samuel chapter 31, even though David is in a bad situation, even though Saul got smashed, even though all of his household got brought down to death, even though all of Israel is on the run from their enemies, even though the Philistines have destroyed them, God will not forsake His people. You want proof? What character in 1 Samuel is not on the battlefront. Who was it that according to God's sovereign providence, His meticulous providence, who was it that according to God's decree and power had been kept back from the lines of battle even though Saul and Israel were falling? It's David. David and all of his men were kept back in the moment, probably discouraged as the Philistines sent him home with their tails between their legs, so to speak, back to all that devastation where they had been, uh, their city had been burned to the ground, their people had been stolen off. But in God's sovereign providence, they are kept. They are preserved so that at the right time, God would do something great. See, Christian, just as God was meticulous in overseeing Saul, According to God's sovereign providence, so he was meticulous in overseeing David and the future deliverance of his people. And so even though you, friend, might read this story and see great tragedy, God's people are always with hope, always with hope, because we are always under the sovereign power of God. Always. And a wonderful reminder of this comes in 1 Samuel chapter 4. You don't have to turn there. But in the death of Saul, it was not the first time that God was mocked. As the people cut off his head, brought his armor, submitted it to, you know, his deities there, brought the good news all around the land. This is not the first time that God was mocked. In chapter 4, the Philistines and Israelites were in a somewhat similar situation as they were here at the end of the book. In chapter 4, the Philistines defeated the Israelites 
that captured the Ark of the Covenant, which was the focal piece of Israel's worship to God, where God met with his people. After defeating the Israelites, the Philistines bring the Ark of the Covenant into the temple of their pagan god, and so God was mocked. The Philistines thought that their god had won and defeated the one and only true god, Yahweh. It seemed that way for the moment. Philistines set up the Ark of the Covenant right next to their idol, Dagon, their statue. You can imagine, right? They turn off the lights. They head out, head out into the parties of the night, the party of the night away. But do you guys remember what happened there in First Samuel chapter 4? The next day they come in, still hungover, whatever it was. They flip on the lights. And in, in an ironic and humorous way, who is it that they find lying face down on the ground, decapitated? It is their idol and statue, Dagon. It is true that for a moment, just for a moment, it seemed as if Dagon and the other gods of the Philistines had won. But it was the Lord who had dominion over their idols, over the Philistines. As the account continues, 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 6 reads, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the Philistines. So here we are again at the end of the book with the Philistines celebrating their God's supposed victory over Yahweh the Lord. But friends, if you're a Christian, you know that salvation alone belongs to God who does not forsake His people. That is not a maybe, it is a surety. And we see this to an infinite degree in whom? In what? We see this in Christ on the cross, don't we? Think back to that moment there. I wonder what victory shouts and celebrations of evil went on on that Friday, the Friday that Christ was crucified. As darkness covered the land, as He was stricken, smitten, and afflicted, as He was beaten, crucified, and pierced, as he breathed his last and was laid in the tomb. And then as discouragement and despair enveloped the disciples, wondering if there would ever be victory over their enemies and hope for the people of God. At face value, if you're not new to this, if you're new to this story, I think you might think that that's a, the worst ending ever. Picture that good news or that scene as the good news reached the ears of the wicked who wanted Christ crucified. And as they enter into the night with shouts of celebration. But then imagine, in the resurrection of Jesus, their parties all stopping. The records stopping as Christ gets up from the dead. As sin and death and Satan are conquered, and the tyranny of sin is no more. Picture that scene as Satan and all of his minions in his realm hear the true good news as the Lord's angel delivered it to the women at the tomb. He is not here. He is risen just as he said. Matthew 28, verse 6. For those who didn't fully grasp what went on, it was, might be, the worst ending ever. But friends, you see that for Christians, it is the best news ever. In Christ's death on the cross, God was, in fact, delivering His people. He was faithful to all of His promises. 
In the cross, we see God present for judgment as Christ bore your sin and the judgment you deserved. God laid it all on His Son. Meticulously so. Knowing every single way in which you had rebelled against your Lord, yet He puts those all, every single one of them, on Christ. We see His meticulous judgment on the cross, but not only do we see His meticulous judgment on the cross for you, Christian, you also see His meticulous deliverance. Every turn in which your soul has gone, every single way in which you have sinned against God, God was there preparing one day for you to receive righteousness by faith in the work of Jesus Christ. Every single way you had turned to sin against God, God knew and was covering over, covering it over with the blood of His Son. Meticulous for judgment, yes, and amen. Meticulous for deliverance and love, yes, and amen. Praise God, He is both. God promised to forgive all those who would turn to Him. To forgive all of those. To grant forgiveness of sin. To give them new status and adoption into His family all by His grace as a gift. Not by works so that you could boast as if we could before God, but all by grace through faith in Christ. God will never abandon His promises. So Christian, as we've been talking so much in this book, if you find yourself in that moment right now thinking that God has abandoned His people, friends, I pray you look to First Samuel chapter 31. I pray you just simply go on and read Second Samuel. And you see this deliverance, not ultimately because... David is such a wonderful king. He's a sinner just like we all are. But we see the wonderful good news because in David, we see glimmers of the true king that we need. The true king that comes to rule and reign, to give his people new hearts, to take his law of righteousness and to write it on our hearts, to give us new desires so that we might begin to love him and live in such a way that we would display his glory to the world, showing all that God never abandons His promise. And just like 1 Samuel chapter 12 says, it so pleases God to take to Himself a sinful people and to make them His holy nation. All of this in Jesus Christ. Friends, look to Jesus. It might feel like you are on your Friday night of crucifixion or the Saturday when Jesus is buried in the ground. But praise God that Sunday will always come. That is the Lord's day. And will be fulfilled in the rest of Jesus Christ into eternity when we see Him face to face. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank You. We give You great praise that You are indeed faithful. We thank you for your steadfast love, which is so often repeated in the word. We praise you for your steadfast love, that love which fulfills all of your promises. Lord, we thank you that that is not dependent upon us because we are weak and we have sinned against you. We turn away from you time and time again. But your salvation comes from you and is dependent upon your character as you are so rich in mercy, full of grace, that you send Jesus Christ the Lord. 
Thank you too, Lord, that you are merciful, that you are tender in your mercies, that you see us in despair, even and misery, that we have brought upon ourselves for sin. We bring upon ourselves your judgment, but yet you are there every single step of the way, every falling for your people, tenderly helping them, bringing us on to the next day, helping us look to Christ, helping us raise our gaze and to behold the wonderful truths of the gospel again. God, we pray that if there are any here who are hardened in heart, who in their pride want to cling to thinking that they can save themselves or thinking that they can actually reach perfection in their own self-righteousness, Lord, we pray that you would break us all down, that we might receive your righteousness in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified, declared righteous in front of your eyes, all on account of believing on the person and work of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that we have this account of of Saul as we actually find ourselves in this account, having rejected you time and time again, having chosen our own wisdom over the Lord's, having thought that we are kings of our own kingdom and not you. And God, we thank you that we have the example of David, who even though he has genuinely tempted to do these things as well, yet, Lord, by your grace, he falls at your feet. Help us fall at your feet even right now. For the discouraged, Lord, we pray that you would help us see again the truths of the gospel. Help us see the wonderful truths in your word where you say that nothing will separate your people from the love of God. Whether we are wrestling with health issues or just difficult circumstances, family problems, work situations, even as we look at the future and wonder if there will be hope here in this world, God, we pray that you would help us cast our eyes to what you have done and are doing and will do one day as you bring it to completion in Jesus Christ. And in that, Lord, we pray that we would have hope. In your name we pray. Amen.